This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hi, I'm Sarah Gregory. And I'm Deanna Altamara. And today we're talking with Drs. Joanna Varon and Xavier Aldana-Reyes about their article on literature and the zombie condition. They're calling from the UK. Welcome, Dr. Varon and Dr. Aldana-Reyes. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you. You give the definition of a zombie as a relentlessly aggressive human or reanimated human corpse driven by biologic infections. Okay, so I just want to be clear here. Zombies don't really exist, do they? <laughs> well, if you were to see me at the end of term. <laughs> uh, but no, to my knowledge, they don't quite exist as we see them on TV, do they, Joe? No, I don't think so. Well, personally, I'm very glad to hear it. <laughs> your article is based off your work at the Bad Bugs Book Club. So what is this club and how did it get started? Okay, well, I set up the Bad Bugs Book Club. I set it up in 2009. Um, so it's been going quite a long time. And if you look on the website, you'll see that there's information of um, about 50 different books that we've read. And you can get information, um, reading guides about it, and also um, information about the different discussions we've had about the books. But it all started really from my teaching, because as a microbiology teacher, I always felt that it was important that my students didn't just sort of learn about microbiology, but were able to talk about microbiology to um, other audiences, even their families, so that then when they went home, they could say what they were studying. So it, it's an ability to be able to communicate science to a whole range of different audiences. And I started getting my students, first of all, by, to use the humanities to communicate their science. And I did a big project with microbiology and art where I got my microbiology students to create art. And then I thought actually literature is something which was very accessible to everybody. And I thought about using fiction um, where infectious disease was part of the plot as a vehicle for talking about disease epidemiology and transmission. Uh, and really, that's how it began. Awesome. And we're still going. Ten years next year. That's great. At first glance, science and literature seem to be very different fields. So how did the two of you meet? Well, you'll end up thinking I'm a very strange person. Um, but when I started looking at um, zombies and them as a model for infectious disease, I... Uh, talked about my interest with a student who was doing a PhD in maths, and he was also interested in um, zombies as a vehicle, as an agent of disease. And together we developed, well, he particularly developed um, a package called SimZombie, which is a game uh, which which you can, which the players can manipulate to show how different monsters can be spread through populations. And one of the ways uh, we had to start up doing this was by getting people, obviously, to pilot pilot this game. And so we invited um, people from our university and from outside the university who were interested in um, vampires, werewolves, and zombies. Oh my! Mm. To come and try out Sim Zombie, and essentially they came and we gave them different scenarios about um, a monster like a vampire and a vampire meeting lots of people, and they had to decide how infectious the vampire was, how hard they would be to kill, how quickly that vampirism would spread, and. Um, 
Zavi was one of the people who came to that meeting, so uh, he can tell you more about that now then. Uh, sure. Um, well, I joined uh, Manchester Met in 2013, and it wasn't long until I heard about um, what Joe was doing. Um, I'm a founder member of the Manchester Centre for Gothic Studies here, which is uh, the biggest of its kind in the world. Um, so, yes, when I heard that there was um, all this work being done with zombies and vampires and werewolves and infection, I was uh, immediately attracted to it. I also run a reading group in the summer. Um, that's a contemporary Gothic reading group. So it seemed like a perfect occasion to um, to join forces, especially because at that time uh, Joe was doing a lot of um, work with zombie fiction in particular, and I've been interested um, by zombies um, for, for a long time. So, um, yeah, that's how we came together. And, and we, we got on very well, and um, Xavi's been coming to the, my book club for a while, and uh, he brings a really fantastic different dimension to our discussions. In the book club, we have scientists and non-scientists, you know, com- uh, you know, and non-academics as well. And Zavi brings um, information about um, Gothic and history and literature. I, I suppose I bring microbiology, and the non-scientists, non-academics all bring their expertise of what they've read. Where, where is it that you both teach? Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK. Both of you? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm Faculty of Science and Engineering. And I work in the uh, Faculty of Humanities. Um, I I work in the English department. And they're quite close together, fortunately. (laughs) So it's it's very interdisciplinary research. And um, we had to explain to one another quite carefully about the terminology that we used and what we meant. Well, a major challenge in public health is maintaining effective communication, as you were talking about, between scientists and, in this case, the public. Uh, Your article describes how science-based book clubs can help improve scientific communication from the standpoints of a microbiologist and a literature professor. Could you explain how this works? Yeah, so um, when we have our book club meetings, there's usually about um, eight people, and say half of them are um, non-scientists, non-academics, and some of us are microbiologists, and some of us are sort of humanities or um, academics from um, a more of an arts-based discipline. And uh, we kind of start by... Did everyone enjoy the book? Did they like the story? Did they like the characters? And we talk through, I suppose, the sort of um, the literature aspects of the book. And then we also look at the microbiological aspects of the book. You know, what disease is being talked about here? Um, How does what we know about this disease relate to the way it's presented in the novel? Is um, Is it accurate? Is it inaccurate? I mean, is it made up? Is it fictional? And also, um, what can we learn from reading these particular books about the epidemiology of real diseases as might be impacting on us now? So uh, we are always conscious in the book club of a world outside where there are diseases and outbreaks and epidemics and pandemics going on. And we do try and bring them into our discussion, and that, that often helps. So that's the way the book club works. But I think for me as a as a microbiologist, what I love about the book club is that everybody is coming into that meeting with something to bring to it. So it's not the scientists giving a load of stuff about diseases. It's eight people who have read a book, all of whom have got something from it. And there is there are um, 
routes through which you can talk about it. And, and I think I think that's how that has worked really well. Um, sometimes it shows up perhaps a misunderstanding about a particular um, a particular disease or you know how a particular disease is spread, and we can talk about it because somebody has sort of asked a question, but it's not um, some know-all scientist trying to tell, you know, somebody else. It's always a conversation, and and I've found that. I found that a really nice sort of level playing field of information to exchange. I don't know what what you think, Zavi. It's fascinating for me because um, getting, shall we say, the the scientific background to some of these novels, um, which as someone who works with literature, um, you don't necessarily do. To me, it's very... um, um, Yes, challenging in a, in a way because I don't normally, you know, when I read a novel about the flu, I don't know the history necessarily of um, flu epidemics, and so finding out whether it's accurate, what the novel takes from it, what it does with it, why it does what it does, it's fascinating, and it gives um, the whole exchange between the sciences and literature a circular um, kind of, um, should we say. Uh, sphere that that otherwise it wouldn't have. So it isn't just about, um, you know, what science hides behind the literature, but also how the literature then informs science in turn. So, um, yeah, it becomes about um, how a matter of representation, but also a matter of how um, literature provides narratives or models uh, that then science can can use. For example, the um, CDC prevention uh, or zombie preparedness blocks, you know, that shows that science is also borrowing from popular culture. So, yes, um, I think everyone wins. So you two coined the phrase emerging infectious literature. I think you've already kind of been talking about this, but talk to us a little bit more about that. So um, when I was teaching, um, I think it was well, it was in the 1990s that the, the term emerging infectious disease arose. And I think it had been noticed at that time that there had been, since the 1970s, that there had been new diseases. So whereas before that, it was really like, oh, you know, infectious diseases sewn up, we've got antibiotics, we've got vaccines, you know, everything is wonderful. And then various other new diseases were um, emerging. I mean, HIV, particularly E. coli, one for seven. There were, you know, there were several hepatitis um, E. Um, and and that term, emerging infectious disease, was used was used to describe what was going on. And we've got a journal of it now, obviously as well. And I used to teach. Um, I used to teach about that because I uh, I used it to. I mean, I think it's amazing. It just shows how dynamic microbiology is as a subject. And um, when you're teaching it, you obviously need to teach the students about what to learn that isn't known yet or how to learn what isn't known yet by um, in, in your teaching. So the, the term was very familiar to me. And I think as Zavi and I were, were talking about the books and the books that we've read, um, it sort of became apparent to us as well that you know there are there are more novels now about influenza because of the scares about influenza. You know there are there are certain diseases that we read that we read novels about now that uh, weren't written about before. So it was like the literature was reflecting the emerging infectious diseases. So the literature itself is emerging. Dr. Aldana Reyes, as a literature professor, what are the big metaphors or themes that occur to you when you read about a zombie? Well, there are many. There is something inherently about um, the, the zombie, you know, to do with both possession and dispossession that is really interesting. And of course, the zombie has 
changed quite a lot throughout the last um, 100 years or so from the Haitian folkloric kind of origins where um, we're talking about a, a lot more about a possessed corpse um, to the more contemporary virological um, kind of, uh, should we say, rabid human that, that we see in a lot of contemporary texts. So that has given rise to a lot of different readings of the zombie. To me, the most interesting ones are the ones that have to do with um, the body of the, the zombie. I think the zombie is the perfect monster for a secular age. You know, he is pure matter driven by instinct. Um, if that's not a, a secular reading of the present, then I don't know what is. Um, but there's also um, a lot to be said about how the behaviours of zombies, you know, the idea of uh, uh, pointless consumption that, that just repeats itself with no real endpoint, um, reflects, uh, well, ne certainly neoliberal economic structures. Um, it, it, it's a perfect monster for the recession, I think. You know, concerns about overpopulation, all of that is there um, either explicitly or implicitly in um, uh, popular zombie texts. And uh, the other thing I like about zombies is the idea of the simple pathetic zombie. Uh, we seem to have gone past the point where zombies were the ultimate point in abjection and that, that kind of abjection is being turned inside out and turned into um, something to, to, to care about, to uh, perhaps understand. So we no longer necessarily engage with monsters in the, in the same way we used to before. So, um, you know, the idea of pure evil is no longer in. We're much more interested in the construction of evil. How do people become um, evil, so to speak? But also, um, um, is, there, is there sympathy for the monster? Can we love the zombie? Um, and so you've got uh, zombie romances where the, um, shall we say, what, what used to be discussed is turned um, um, on its head and it becomes something to, to pity, understand and value. So as in warm bodies, um, the zombie can be loved back to life, which <laughs> I think is a really, really interesting um, notion that is very contemporary. Um, they really are great models for social exclusion, marginalization, and other forms of, um, you know, cultural exclusion. Yeah. This is actually um, very interesting. La just recently, we did a, a podcast on the ethics of uh, of um, and of the stigmatiza stigmatization of um, carriership in um, people carrying disease that weren't really infected, and how they're stigmatized by it. So this actually sort of plays into that, what you're talking about. Yeah, those are all really fascinating points. And how about you, Dr. Varan? How are zombies often used as metaphors for infectious disease? Well, as I said before, I think the obvious, um, the obvious example is, you know, if, if you are attacked by a zombie, typically you become a zombie. So there is this transmissibility of infection. Um, I think you can then also look... Um, at certain texts about zombies and to get a bit more information. So uh, World War Z, um, particularly, is a fantastic resource about um, zombies. And, and they, they, they talk about it from a um, political, biological, geographical um, viewpoint. It's a fabulous book. Um, and, and they... They explain and they try and explain how quickly, how long the incubation period is. And I think all of those kind of, you can dig into some books and find a little bit about, you know, incubation periods. And so you can get some idea of the epidemiology of a particular type of zombie infection in a different kind of novel. Because, of course, as we said, they are all fiction. But the zombie also is a, is um, a sort of a, a visible embodiment of um, essentially an invisible 
agents. So in many cases now, it's some sort of biological infection, a microbiological infection. And in many cases, it's a virus. So lots of different zombie books have virus infections to start with. So, and you can't see those. So the zombie does allow a kind of really rapid visualization of, of the spread of a condition through a population. Um, obviously, uh, faster than, than one would normally expect. I mean, when you look, when you look at, um, say, Day of the Dead, the zombies really aren't doing very much at all. They sort of lumber around a bit. But in um, 28 days later, they are really that's the really really quick you know incubation period and they also move really fast so the epidemiology of that disease um is changing because the zombies can run whereas beforehand you know you could quite easily avoid a zombie if you ran because they they couldn't so um the zombie epidemiology again has also changed and evolved over time to to speed up i think um it's been said speeding up with today's society that the zombies move fast because so does everything in society so um i think um i was talking to zavi earlier you know um, people used to be sort of you know frightened about ghosts or frightened of um you know other gothic figures but in a way now we're quite frightened about infectious diseases um, you know, the, the new, you know, what's going to be the next um, influenza pandemic, what's going to be the next um, disease apocalypse. And the, the zombie actually allows you to kind of explore it, really, um, because the way that the zombies described, the way the diseases progress, and also how the surviving populations behave. How do they um, contain or can they contain the infected? Um, can they prevent the infection spreading? Can they control it? How do they, um, can they kill it? Can they inactivate it? So it, the zombie does allow you to explore aspects of the epidemiology of disease in a, in a obviously in a fictional way, but it, you get a lot of freedom that way as well. So they, they've been very useful in that sense. So, in your article, you discuss how zombie infections often resemble real-life infections. So, Dr. Varan, would you be able to give us a few examples of this? Yeah, um, I think um, if you look at, first of all, if you look at routes of transmission, um, then uh, mainly the infection by zombie is through puncture. So, um, rabies is, is, say, one of the most obvious um, routes of infection for that. And in World War Z, they talk about, you know, the... the the nearer to the brain um, the bite is, the shorter the incubation period, which is, you know, um, which is uh, also talked about with rabies. And there are also um, infections of uh, zombieism in World War Z um, produced through um, transplants as well. So, you know, that's one example about transmission. In terms of the symptoms, um, the behavior obviously looks at um, um, affecting the brain and things, uh, various prion diseases or um, toxoplasmosis perhaps uh, are, are diseases which can affect brain behavior as also rabies uh, to some extent as well. And I think um, some of the symptoms of zombie infections are more like sort of rotting bodies. So again, it's, it's more like sort of, I suppose gangrene, pus, 
septic infections, that sort of thing. But um, that's uh, more of a general um, deterioration of a body. Again, in World War Z, I think in the end, the zombies just rot away because there's nothing really left of them because they've actually, having had whatever the infection was, they then get bacterial infections and they and they rot away until they can't move anymore. And the epidemiology of a zombie infection is also quite interesting because you can look at, you know, essentially it's disease by um, transmission through contact. So uh, something contemporary, you could look at Ebola because of the outbreaks there, you know, you have to have quite close contact to, to be infected. So again, there are diseases and you can bring in different epidemiologies as necessary. Um, a couple of books recently have looked at um, a fungal agent for um, zombieism. So The Girl with All the Gifts by M.R. Carey. In that case, um, it's fungal. And uh, there is an episode later in the book where there is a release of fungal spores. That then turns it into an airborne type of infection, um, which you can, I suppose, relate more to some sorts of viral infections. So, yeah, what we try and do is sort of bring together all the information that we have from the novel that we're reading and from the background information we have and through contemporary epidemiology to see what, you know, what we can learn from, from the reading. So, uh, so, yeah, there's quite a few examples. So sort of continuing on with what you were just saying, a lot of the zombie infections we see in the media appear to be rooted in science. For example, many describe the virus's biological effects on the brain, as you were talking about. Do these descriptions use real life science um, more accurately, or are they mostly just sort of made up words and concepts? <laughs> um, I think... Uh, Many of the authors that, uh, some of the authors that we've read, I know Zabi's looked at them as well, you know, they, they certainly use their inspiration from science and they also research into science as well. So, you know, it's not, it's not made up. There is an underpinning and an inspiration, if not a, a literal translation. Uh, I mean, if you look at current things, there, there was the zombie ants, you know, the, the ants that infected with a, um, fungus and then they start to behave like zombies um so you know there there are some real life science and in fact you know in in many books there is there is a lot of science that we can read and and some some novels are quite keen on like techno science so you know you 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 get um a page and a half about how to use a scanning electron microscope transmission electron microscope um and for some that's interesting and for others um perhaps less so. So there are different um, styles of writing. And what the book, what we do in the book club, we try and pick it apart, really, and, um, you know, see, see what's, you know, see where the science is and see how, how, how well the science reflects real life science. Um, some of the books that we have read, um, I haven't produced reading guides for because we didn't really feel that in, in the book there was enough for somebody to get any sort of epidemic or infectious disease information out, um, for example, the uh, the strain um, by Al Toro, uh, Guillermo del Toro, so um, and and somebody else, uh, uh, Chuck, Chuck, Hogan. Chuck Hogan. So although it was an exciting sort of vampire thing, it really didn't. We didn't really feel it had enough science in. Uh, yeah, exactly. And um, we do see what we do see, is, as uh, Joe is saying, is a lot more scientists writing creatively. I mean, Joe herself is a creative writer, so um, <laughs> trying, <obviously>, trying. <laughs> um, I think there is an interest in literature as a 
as a channel for, for at least partly for science. And there are some novels like The Zombie Autopsies, which we uh, write about in the article by Stephen Schlossman. Now, Stephen himself is a, a psychiatrist. Um, you know, so that all the science there about the brain and the way that it decays, you know, obviously has a scientific background. And that's fascinating. Um, this is where, you know, the, the book club really helps us um, come to terms with the science behind the novels, but also the inspiration for the novels. You know, why write a novel about um, the, the decay of the brain after a, a zombie invasion? And what we see as well, interestingly, is, um, you know, things have the other way around, where neuroscientists, for example, will use zombie metaphors as a way of talking about neurology and, and the way that the brain functions. It's incredibly interesting, um, and it's really quite difficult to extricate the science from the fiction. One is inspiration for the other, I think you could say. So, uh, Dr. Adana Reyes, uh, the undead have been appearing in books and stories for thousands of years. Tell us a little bit more about the history of their places in literature. So it's interesting because um, ghosts, of course, go back to, you know, um, oral history. The, the first uh, recorded um, uh, instance of the word, um, I think it's ghost or apparition being used, if I'm not misremembering, is, you know, as far back as the 8th century. And they have obviously um, been used uh, in different ways. You know, people were really scared of vampires at one point, of the, the, the dead returning. Now, What's interesting is that most Gothic monsters are some form of undead, either the dead returning or the dead coming back to life. Um, in the case of the zombie, it's a very, very interesting um, example of a, um, a monster that's changed quite radically throughout the 20th century. As I said, if you go back to its origins in um, the West Indies in, in, in folklore, um, we're talking about very much, um, you know, possession type of zombies, sort of voodoo zombies. But that changes radically in the 60s with um, George Romero and his Night of the Living Dead. Um, and zombies kind of become brain-eating monsters. Um, but it's not really until the 1990s that virology really kicks in with a video game like Resident Evil and then the adaptation in the 2000s. And now they have become eminently um, viral monsters. So what's interesting for me is both the, the fascination that we have with the undead, which is continuing, um, certainly not new or 19th century, uh, strongly 19th century invention, um, but the fact that they change the roles um, that they play culturally. So we now fall in love with vampires um, and even zombies, uh, but they might become um, vectors for other types of social um, concerns and messages like virology or uh, the management of um, overpopulation, um, concerns about um, economy. This is where I find that the Gothic is not something of the past, but very much of the present. Um, we keep on um, rethinking monsters according to, uh, to the zeitgeist, and that's why, you know, why I find them really interesting. Especially since these myths have persisted for so long in human consciousness, why do you think people find zombies so fascinating? This article has generated a lot of press. I think that zombies are so fascinating because in a way they are us already. Um, there is a very, very thin line between zombies and humans that's got shorter as they have become rabid humans. Um, we see that, for example, um, in 28 Days Later, where some people were complaining um, the zombies were actually rabid humans. So um, they allow us really very much to talk about the present, what's happening to us. Um, but they're also a cautionary tale, really, about what could happen tomorrow. And notice that most um, zombie narratives, they're not, strictly speaking, horror stories, insofar as they don't focus on the horror of the um, 
attack of the zombies, they tend to be longer narratives, especially following um, The Walking Dead. They're, they're stories about survival and about management um, of people, of resources. Um, I think they're ultimately um, tales about um, climate change, about um, resources, as I say. They're very much tales of the present and the near future. Okay, uh, you may have touched on this earlier, but uh, why why exactly did you choose zombie fiction as your theme for your EID article instead of, say, werewolves or vampires, or your long-term study, I guess I should say? Okay, well, it's actually quite interesting, because uh, um, from, from the book club, the first um, book um, that we read that featured monsters, we read Dracula by Bram Stoker, was one of the earlier books we read. And it was also at the time that the Twilight movies had just come out. And um, the Manchester Children's Book Festival was, was started in 2010, I think. And um, I ran the science corner in, the, in that um, book festival and chose the Twilight novel um, as the focus for looking at the transmission of infectious diseases because I thought it was a book that young adults would have read, um, particularly girls, I, I obviously, I think. Um, so I, I had a, a workshop and I set the workshop in something that looked like a lab. Everybody who came in had to put a lab coat on because that's where the two protagonists first meet. They meet in a biology lab studying the cell cycle. So we had slides there so they could look at the cell cycle. And then we talked about what it was that made Edward become a vampire in the first place. Um, you know, why he was turned into one. And it was because he had influenza in 1918. So he was turned into a vampire to stop him dying of influenza in 1918. Then you can explore um, influenza disease, why people are scared of it, how you catch it. Then you can compare it to vampirism, um, how you catch it, what diseases are transmitted in that way. And you can think about how you would prevent these infections. So how would you, if you didn't want to be a vampire, what would you do? You know, saying if there was a vampire outside your door and you didn't want to let him in, you know, what would you do? Well, you don't let them in. So you're modifying your behavior to not expose yourself to that infection, which is actually a way of preventing infectious disease. And things like garlic, you know, that they are, you can talk about, um, you know, prophylaxis, vaccination, prevention. So, you know, even even Twilight could be in the Bad Bugs book club. So we started looking at um looking at vampires. And then Sim Zombie, as I, as I mentioned earlier, allowed us to explore and compare zombies, vampires and werewolves as agents of infectious disease. And um, vampires, um, as Zavi said, you know, they, they um, apart from usually being quite charismatic these days, um, they're only active at night. And they tend to produce clusters of activity. So when you read anything about vampires, it tends not to be a plague of vampires. It tends to be something quite localized. So it's almost like sort of little outbreaks of, you know, venereal disease infections. Uh, werewolves are only active in the full moon. So, and again, they, they have an even smaller um, way of spreading werewolves. And also, werewolves know what they are. So very often you read that werewolves chain themselves up and lock themselves up so they don't escape and kill people um, when it's the full moon because they know what's going to happen. So werewolves are quite sentient. Um, also quite boring, really, because for 30, you know, 29 days of the month, they don't do anything at all. They're just like normal. But 
by that sort of monthly appearance, you know, you can think about herpes. So, you know, even vampires and werewolves, you can, you can think about infectious disease. But we chose zombies, I think, for all of the reasons that we, we've talked about already. You know, they are so much more um, versatile uh, and they allow you to um, explore many things as well as, as well as just viruses and disease. And of course, all of these works are fictional, but they make you wonder, do we really have to worry about a zombie-like apocalypse? As Joe says, um, obviously, we don't necessarily have to, to fear zombies um, directly in terms of you know, real zombies, but they are great um, cautionary tales, as, as I was saying before, about overpopulation, about climate change. What's interesting about the zombie apocalypse is that um, whilst we have obviously fantasized about the end of the world for many, many years, uh, novels like The Last Man or The Mummy, written in the early uh, 20th century, uh, 19th century, sorry, um, we're always uh, fantasizing about really far in the future, you know, 300 years um, in the future, whilst now uh, this apocalypse is, they're very close to our mm. own time. We're fantasizing the apocalypse, the end of things within now, 100 yeah, years yeah. now, sometimes even like 10 years um, or, or 40 years in the fiction of David Mitchell. So that tells you something about our vision of the world, the dwindling material resources of the population, as I said, and our role within it. So I think they're great um, stories in terms of learning about um, how we manage, um, you know, the world. So perhaps it's not specifically zombies we need to worry about, but, um, you know, apocalypses in general. Well, on that horrifying note. (laughs) I thank you both, Dr. Varon and Dr. Aldana Reyes, for taking the time to talk with us about this entertaining, but, you know, absolutely very serious topic. Listeners can read the EID Another Dimension online at cdc.gov slash EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. And I'm Deanna Altamara with Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.